You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father, we dare not start into your word without pleading with you for the Holy Spirit and for the wisdom of heaven. We pray that he will be here present among us and that together as we study these wonderful um, truths from the Apostle Paul that you gave him through revelation, that we will understand them well. And more than that, that we'll be able to explain them to our friends and our neighbors. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Okay, if you take your uh, Bibles and turn to chapter 3, we, the last um, verse there, and I'm not going to spend a long time. I could spend a long time, but I'm not going to spend a long time because I want to get down to the real uh, meat of this thing. But in chapter 3, and looking at verse 28, so one of the great passages, and it shouldn't be overlooked, and that is there, uh, verse 26 says, you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer, you're a son of God, a child of God. And then verse 27 says that you become that way by baptism. That's the symbol. But you actually come that way when you're justified by faith in Christ. And then verse 28 sums up what he means by the sons of God. He says, for there is neither Jew nor Greek. By the way, there are parallel statements in Paul's writing. Sometimes he will leave out one or two of these, so it's not identical, but it's the, the gist is the same. There is neither, there is neither, I keep losing my place here. There's neither Jew nor Greek, verse 28. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is about equal access to Christ, no matter what your station in life. Now, I don't have time to get into the Roman world and the Roman world of slavery, but the basic idea behind what all the slaves that you had in Rome was that they were out conquering people. And it didn't matter what ethnicity you were, if you got conquered by them, if your army surrendered, everybody in that army, including their women and children, now became the property of Rome, do you understand? So they said, either we kill you or you become our property, or you kill us. That's the way they operated. And so Rome was filled with these slaves, so to speak. They're very fine people, many of them, and, uh, and very talented people. Um, and so many of these people accepted Christianity, even though they were enslaved in slave condition in all kinds of different, uh, different areas. Like the apostle John, for instance, was put on the Isle of Patmos where it was a quarry. He was so old. They put a lot of people there. They really just wanted to get rid of. Other of these people were all in high echelons of society. So it just depended on who bought you and how they incorporated you, uh, so forth. Um, and then to speak to the world that we live in, when it says there's neither male nor female, he's not talking about feminism. And there's nothing wrong with parts of feminism, but we've got radical feminism today, and we all know what that means. He's not also, he's not talking about macho masculism. Somebody should have said amen. If we want to understand this thing, 
we need to go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we understand God's ideal for that, and I'm not going to get into that right now, but you can't get better than Christ and the church and that relationship. But what he's talking about here is equal access. And it didn't mean, even if you were a barbarian from the steeps of uh, Euro-Asia, they were called barbarians or Scythians. If you accepted Christ, you, you have access to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? There's no words. So what, what Rome placed values on people, Paul says we don't place values on people because they're all precious in the sight of God. So the slaves were just as valuable. The women were just as valuable as the men and vice versa. The barbarians were just as valuable as the elite Romans. And Jesus loved them all. All these barriers were put in by human uh, kinds of things. What we want in the church to take those barriers down and be connected with Christ. So he's not doing away with normal functions in our, of our creation. He's not doing away with any of that. And you know what the world has turned into today, so I don't have to get into that. But verse 29 is, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Seed and heir with promise. Now, I talked about that the other day, that Abraham's children are counted to him as children, not the ones who are just necessarily genetically related to him, but they only become the children of Abraham when they have the faith of Abraham. If you have the faith of Abraham today in Christ the Messiah, you are a child of Abraham, and that guarantees that you have access to all the inheritance that's due to the heirs of Abraham, which, by the way, is the new Jerusalem and eternal life. Hallelujah. And that good news? Because that's what the promise brings, brings the Messiah. All right. Let's, um, let's go just a little further here and, chant, uh, and move into chapter 4. Now, I say that the heir… By the way, yesterday we talked about the tutor and the babysitter. Remember that? And said, so just use the word babysitter. So we, we went through that. And I told you that he's going to double down on this. And that's what he's getting ready to do. He, he wants us to get this. And that's why in the book of Galatians, this whole issue of the sanctuary is so important. And to understand the role of the sanctuary, uh, we gave you, this is the promise given to Abraham. This is the sanctuary. This is the cross. And to understand the role here, because Israel replaced the promise with a new system that Paul calls the works of the law. It was not the works of the law when it was given. It was never meant to be that way. They went into apostasy and they turned it into that. And we'll see more of that as you get into chapter, as we get into chapter four. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from a slave, though he's a master of all. Whoa, that's the kind of thing. I think it's going, he's going to use the word bondage here. And you've got to always look at the context because the minute you think of the word slave in our culture or you think of the word bondage, we think about the horrible American experience of slavery. But you always have to look at the context. Now, I want to ask you a question. When your children were growing up, or maybe you have children, Question and answer, who is in control? If you tell me they are, I want to talk to you afterwards. Now, the word control is the bottom line here. So, a slave is not in control of the decision-making. Am I right? 
and your children, of course, I understand as they get older, you give them more blah, blah, blah. But you get my point. We're using an illustration here. The illustration is that the children are not in control. What do you think when you see kids running around that are out of control? Don't tell me I know what you think. I, I, my, my children, I, I love my children. Watch, I, I, you, you think back about them growing up. And, um, and my, my daughter, she, she was just pretty careful to stay out of trouble. My son wasn't. And one day I was preaching and uh, my wife sat up near the front row on purpose <laughs> so dad could intervene if he needed to. And he was, doing, he was doing something, giving his mother a hard time. And I just, I keep preaching. I just picked him up like this. He was little enough I could do it. <laughs> he looked at me, and I just kept preaching and, and uh, just held him there for a, a little bit. And pretty soon, you know, I just went over and set him back down. You know what? That brought control back in. The word slave here in this context is not bad. The children of Israel were under the control of the babysitter or the tutor or the trustee for a good reason is because they tended to stray. Do we get, I'm, I'm trying to, Paul is going to nail this down over and over because he wants us to get it. That's what Galatians is all about. There's nothing bad about this, just as there's nothing bad about parents if you're good parents, normal. I didn't say perfect parents, it's no such thing. Somebody should have said amen to that too. All right, but okay, this child, verse two, but is under the guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Verse three, even so when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. I'm gonna to come to three in just a moment, but let me flash back to this verse two, because they are under, we call them trustees in the Michigan Conference. If you go and make a will, for instance, and you say, if something happens to mom and I, we want such and such to look after our children, and we want you to look after whatever money that we leave in property, and something does, God forbid, does happen to you, who's in charge of the children now? The children are not going to make, because the parents set it up that way. The parents want to make sure the children aren't buying crazy stuff with the money that they left them until they have some common sense. So they're not in charge of the decisions. So they can go to the trustee and say, you know, all that money my mom and dad left me, that's my money. Yes, it's your money. That's true. Fine. I'm, I'm going to buy a brand new Corvette and a new Mustang. No, you're not. Well, it's my money. It may be your money, but you're not going to do it. Well, you don't have a right to tell. Yes, I do. Because the parent left us in charge. So he left that sanctuary system in charge of Israel. Now, let's look at that next text, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were, in, we were in bondage. Now, I said that word doesn't sound good, but it's not bad in this context. You, you, you get it now. We, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. What are the elements of the world? I puzzled over that for some time. I said, Lord, what is going on? And I would 
read this person. Well, it's the principles. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Just take the text for what it says. What are elements? You're sitting on one, some. It's matter. It's wood, stone, metal. It's people. So what is this sanctuary made out of? Metal, stone, uh, curtains, priest. So he's just simply saying, you, this is the elements of the world. You can see, touch, and feel it, so to speak. And you're under those elements in order to keep you in the straight and narrow. Verse 4 is a text that's been often used with Daniel 9, and it should be used with Daniel 9. And it says, but when the fullness of time had come, and you cannot escape Daniel chapter 9 there. By the way, Jesus was born under the babysitter. He was born under the trustee. He doesn't start his ministry until he's 27 years old. It's not to the cross that this thing is pushed away. And that's when the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, telling the world that the babysitter is finished. Still with me? Okay. All right. Let's, let's go on here, but when the full, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Does that mean that everybody that's under the babysitter, see our evangelical friends will interpret that the wrong way. They will interpret that according to the Jewish apostasy. It was the Jewish apostasy that made you to be able to, uh, not able, but made you saved by the works of the law. That was never in God's plan. This was never, ever given as a system to be saved by performance. It was because you trusted God, and that's the reason you went through the rituals, because they reminded you that you were saved by faith alone, just like the circumcision issue. So our evangelicals sometimes, and I say this with sweet kindness, will interpret this by saying, see, Jesus was born under that time when people were saved by the works of the law. No, 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 no. Nobody's ever saved by the works of the law. Only because of the apostasy. So he he uses that phrase, and you have to watch that context just uh, a bit and realize that Jesus never, ever accepted the Pharisaic interpretation of this. And that's why Paul was converted, was given revelations from Jesus himself, you remember the early part of Galatians, was to correct people's understanding of this. And Paul is correcting it here. All right, still with me? Any questions? Okay, where's the microphone? I have a lady here that has a question, so I don't because it's really important that we get this clear right here, Cindy. So, help me understand if I'm going down the right road. So the sanctuary, the law, all the implements of the sanctuary point to the character of God as displayed in the ministry of Jesus. Yes, we said that yesterday and we're gonna say it more today, go ahead. 
So therefore, until Jesus literally is anointed as the Messiah, then that all said was the tutor until Jesus himself demonstrates the character of God. Is that right? It's correct. If the Pharisees had been, if they had been studying scripture appropriately and understood it, they would have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. The moment they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they didn't need this any longer because the real parent had showed up. So the real parent shows up, the real parent dismisses the babysitter. Isn't that what you do? You say, you know, you're a wonderful babysitter. We really like you, but we're home. Okay, let's, let's, um, let's go ahead here. Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. Who is to be redeemed here? What does redeem mean here? It's talking about the Jewish people. Yeah, it's talking about all of Abraham's descendants who should have put their faith in him. So when Jesus shows up, he says, I'm here to redeem you from the babysitter. I'm here to redeem you from the trustee. I'm here to redeem you from the guardian that I appointed over you. Does that make the guardian bad or the babysitter bad or the trustee bad? No, but that's what the evangelical world will tell you. And they'll put them fighting each other. Because in this, they will include everything, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and all. By the way, it is all in there, and it's all good. Verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons or children. When Jesus came, he promised to bring us back into his family as sons and daughters of God. He sent the babysitter to keep us in line till he could get back. And when he comes back and we put our faith in him, he officially signs the check with his blood on Calvary's cross. He doesn't sign the check, he signs the adoption papers. So now when we put our faith in Jesus, you and I are the children of God. Isn't that wonderful? Legally before it was promised. And they could enjoy that promise, but now it's legal. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I, I want to say this. Both of our children are adopted. And I remember very clearly, you don't have that child until you sit in front of that judge. And until the judge signs off, the baby isn't yours. At Calvary's cross, Jesus signed off. And we are the children. This is, should be precious to us. This is something extra special. I know they all knew God as their father and they loved God before the cross, but there's something extra special when it's done, done. Verse Six. By the way, how do you receive adoption? By faith. But you trust in him. 
I keep coming back to that because that's the bottom line through all of this. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, what? Abba, Father. Now, sometimes we read over that uh, too lightly. God doesn't just give us theory. If you've accepted Christ, truly accepted him as your personal Savior by faith, you must be, at that point, born again. Now, everybody has a different experience. I want to be careful here. Um, some people have a Damascus experience where God just... Other people have a growing experience, but they know that they have been changed. They're different. And the fact that you're different in a new creation is the result of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's not possible. And that miracle of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee from the Father that he's adopted you into his family. Isn't that wonderful news? So if you start doubting your father's love, just remind him and thank him for sending the Holy Spirit in your heart, making a new person out of you, and thank him that you really are his child despite the difficulties going on around you or the trials you're experiencing or the difficulties you're up against. No matter what we're going through, we are still God's children. And he's given us that witness, witness in ourselves. I can't be that witness for you, but I can be the witness for me. I mean, I can tell you the Holy Spirit has made a different person out of me. I'd be a totally different kind of person if it weren't for the Holy Spirit making a new creation out of me. You know, the sad thing is people sometimes intellectually accept Christ but never experience Christ. And that's why we call the seminar Experiencing Jesus Through Galatians. I want to say over and over, and, and this is not emotion. You know, people go to certain kinds of, and I say sweet kindness, they go to certain kinds of meetings, religious meetings, and they hope to, and I'm not saying there's not presence there, that God doesn't work in, in strange and wonderful ways, but they, as long as they have the feeling, they think that, that God is with them. But the minute waves of despondency sweep over them, they think that God has left them. I want to say it clearly. Faith is not feelings. Let me give you an example, and don't raise your hand. You're married. You can remember your wedding day. You can remember all the wonderful things. But let me ask you a question. Do you wake up every day and every moment feeling warm and fuzzy and wonderful as you did on your wedding day? Now, you know the answer to that. But that's why you had the wedding day. For better or for worse. And you could say for good feelings and bad feelings. When I feel good and when I don't feel good. I put my faith in you 
and you put your faith in me and we're making a commitment not based on our feelings but based on love that is an intelligent choice. Following me? I think the ladies get it. You men get it too. We should get it. Well, my point is this. That's the way it is with Jesus. You're not, just because you're not emotionally on an emotional spiritual high every time doesn't mean that Jesus isn't with you. He is with you. And you can have the peace of God. You should have the peace of God. Because he makes a commitment. And by the way, he keeps his commitments. All right. Let's, let's go on here. We want to get into this a little bit more. Verse 8. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Now, listen to verse 9. This is where a lot of people get lost. And I got, I wandered around in this wilderness too a bit. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, listen carefully to the language. Remember who he's talking to. Question and answer. Who's he talking to? Converted people from paganism. These are not Jews. So listen. But now after you have known God, or rather known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Now, I want you to get what's going on here. He's saying to the Galatians who were pagans that before they knew Christ, they were under the control of weak and beggarly elements. And that's exactly what paganism has. Does paganism have elements? Do they have temples? Do they have priests? Do they have all those same kinds of things that you find in the Jewish sanctuary? Question and answer. And the answer is yes. So he says now that these Judaizing Christians have shown up. And by the way, it's more than just circumcision. The next text will prove that. But I'm not going to get into the next text yet. That's a big deal. So when they show up and they come to the Galatians who've been set free by the grace of Christ and by their faith in Christ from paganistic elements of temples and priests and they're now saying oh oh okay so we should have circumcision so we should keep the special feast days and all that yes yes you believe in Jesus but you need to have all of these okay Paul says when you say okay you are going back to being underneath the beggarly elements the only difference is and it's much more deceptive, is that these elements of the Jewish sanctuary were given by God himself. The babysitter was given by God himself. It was appointed by God himself. Is that a good thing, yes or no? It is, except for the previous verses that said, until the fullness of time. And when the time comes that the Messiah shows up, you don't need the babysitter with all of its weak and beggarly elements again. You following me? Have I lost any of you? This is why 
This is why people get so confused at this. So Paul is saying, there's no difference. Now he's gonna add the apostasy into it. There's no difference between those weak and bagly elements that you were under than these weaker bagly elements, especially if they're acting like those weak and beggarly elements. Did I lose you? Here's the deal. What the Jews had done is they had taken this babysitter and they had turned it into the same identical system as paganism. Everybody's saved here by getting through the rituals, by doing all the incantations, by doing all these things, et cetera, et cetera. And you're saved here by all the added man-made laws, by the concept that you've got to get through all the rituals. As Paul would say, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. If anybody could have made it in this system, it was me. But nobody could make it. The tragedy of what the Jewish people did with their sanctuary by the time Jesus came, it was hopeless. First of all, the average individual just kind of figured they were just going to go to, because they couldn't make it. The Pharisees and the priests set themselves up, you know, as saying, well, you don't want anything to do with that rabble. They're all condemned anyway. At the same time, they would say, if you want to be saved, make sure you sew your handkerchief to your coat on Sabbath. And all the other man-made things that were absolutely impossible to do. God never, ever intended for that to become that. This is apostasy. And Jesus came to set his people free, not only from the legitimacy of the babysitter, but he came to set them free from the apostasy that was just like the pagan apostasy. Still with me? So, we'll go back to the text. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, verse 9, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be again in bondage. Tell me why. Do people want to go back to? What is it about human nature? Why is it that huge chunks of Christianity return to the same thing? The apostasy of the dark ages is exactly what happened to the Jewish sanctuary. It's going back to these weak and beggarly elements. I'm not making fun. People are very sincere. I have lovely people that I know that I love. They're very dedicated. And they go through the rituals and they go through everything hoping. Listen, friends. If we have faith in Jesus and we have surrendered our life to him, we have every reason to hope and to be cheerful. 
We are not under these weak and beggarly elements, much less the apostasy. Much of the world is over there, and a bunch of it is over here, including the Christian world today. I'm pausing because I want to make sure that I don't lose you. You need to be able to explain this to people. All right, let's, uh, let's go. Verse 10. Ooh, this is a big one. You observe months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid for you that I have labored for you in vain. Verse 11. Whoa. So these Judaizers were showing up to the Galatian Christians and they were saying, okay, you know, you need to be circumcised. But you know, we have this special day there's, and this special day and the temple will be observing the day of Pentecost, the Passover, and you really need to be part of that in order to find acceptance, justification with God. That's where that, but I want you to look at that text again. Tell me in the text what part of time is left out. You're being quiet, but you're kind of mumbling under your breath. All right, how is time controlled for planet Earth? By what bodies? Sun, moon, and stars, am I right? That, that, that controls our time. So that controls the months, correct? Controls the years and the day. But there's something he didn't mention. He did not mention the weekly cycle. It's not mentioned. The weekly cycle is not controlled by these bodies. The weekly cycle is a command of God given at the creation of the world. And the weekly Sabbath is the capstone to God's command at creation that he created all of us. Now, I'm going to tell you why this is a big deal, and that's because most evangelicals today will throw the Seventh-day Sabbath right into that. So I'm going to share something. It's, um, it's in my book, but I'm going to share at least pieces of this because I, want us not to, I don't want us to miss this. I could probably do it out of my head, but... It's better if I share a little bit here. Let me see if I've got the right spot. I'll just share it out of my head. What I got written is better. Okay, let, let, me go, let me go back to this and share. So, the sanctuary service contained both the ceremonial and the moral law, I'm using the moral law referring to the Ten Commandments, and those were by Jesus declared to be the law, Matthew 5, 17. We talked about it yesterday. Do not think that I'm come to destroy the or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill. And we mentioned yesterday, and we're nailing it down again today, is that the law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law were all fulfilled in the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. Remember that from yesterday? Okay, I want to say again how this is done. Your justification depends on the fulfillment of Christ fulfilling the ceremonial law. 
That's where your justification comes from. That's where the lamb is at. That's where the rituals are at. So when Jesus fulfilled those, he provided for your justification. Isn't that good news? But what about the moral law? Question and answer. Did Jesus live a perfect life? If he lived a perfect life, he had to be in total, complete harmony with the moral law that he had given. So when Jesus converts you through the ceremonial law, putting that in quote, when he converts you by his fulfillment of the ceremonial law, then he does something else. He comes into your heart, the living Christ, and now he brings the moral law into your life. And you live a moral life by his power. We call that sanctification. Morality is a huge discussion in our world. I think I mentioned that earlier. It's huge. The whole nation today is fighting over morals. Who's right? Now, I think I may have mentioned this. If I did, it's worth mentioning again. The issue for America is, and for anybody, is who has the authority to determine morality? If you and I are evolutionists and we look at each other and say, look, you're no better than I am, I'm no better than you are, I'm just as smart as you are, you're as smart as I am, and we have a different viewpoint of morality, then whose morality is going to be in charge? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. People are going to duke it out, and that's what's going on in the nation. And whoever wins is going to impose their morality on everybody else. If you haven't woken up to that, that's what's going on, and that's what the mark of the beast, I'm not saying this is the mark of the beast, but that's ultimately where the mark of the beast goes. Although there's some other ramifications of that I won't take time to get into. So the question is, who's in charge of morality? God alone is in charge because God is the creator, and he's the one that gives the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm talking to my evangelical friends because they will say that when they look at that moral law, they have no trouble with any part of that moral law except which one. And then they will say, well, that was all done away with, and uh, the Sabbath is uh, part of the ceremonial kinds of stuff. So it's really not binding. You just have to use the principle. You ever heard of that before? Of course you have. Have to use the, the principle of it. Well, for, if you're a converted, born-again Christian, you want the living Christ in your life and heart, and the living Christ will bring his morality into your life. So the question that Seventh-day Adventists must answer back to our friends is this. The Sabbath is indeed moral. And they're going to say, what? How is it moral? It doesn't keep you from killing, blah, 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 blah. So what's moral about the Sabbath? I'll tell you. The Sabbath is right in the heart of the moral commandments of God. 
It's the only commandment that identifies who the moral authority is and you cannot have morality without having moral authority and the only way you recognize the moral authority is to recognize the Sabbath. So every time you keep Sabbath by faith, you recognize that he is the moral authority and he has a right to guide my life in morality. You cannot, and that's what they do, you cannot, and I say this to people, if the Ten Commandments matter, the Sabbath matters. Now, Jesus and his disciples spent lots of time, and I won't take time to go into all of that, they spent lots of time proving the unity of the Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus said, all the law and the prophets are hung on two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor. And we know the Ten Commandments are divided in that. We all know that. So Sabbath is moral. It's a moral commandment. It's not ceremonial. And I'm gonna, I got a list in here of the differences between the ceremonial Sabbath and the, and the seventh-day Sabbath because they will put it right in here. And it doesn't belong there. It never did belong there. And it's not controlled by months, years, or seasons. It's controlled by the command of God himself. Still with me? See, I'm going to go, I'm going to find these uh, parallels if I can, if I can find them here real quick, if you don't mind. I'm sure that I have got them here because I went and extra marked them today and here they are. Okay. Here are the differences. And I've got about... eight or ten of these, so be with me. Here we go. The ceremonial Sabbaths are connected to and require animal sacrifices, all of which are symbolic. In contrast, the weekly Sabbath required no animal sacrifices and is found in the moral truth of the Ten Commandments written on stone. Since this, uh, next one, since the Sabbath is found in the moral law, then its violation, like the other nine, had to be atoned for by sacrifice. The Ten Commandments had, nor do they have, any atoning power. In other words, the Ten Commandments can't forgive you anything. Next one, the Ten Commandments were called the words of the covenant and resided in the Ark of the Covenant. That means the Sabbath is part of the moral covenant which God made. You get me? So the Ten Commandments called the covenant, it's morality, it's right there, and the Sabbath is part of that. This covenant stated clearly God's requirements and His mercy. On the other hand, ceremonial Sabbaths, along with their animal sacrifices, were symbolic illustrations of the atoning part of the covenant. But they were not the covenant. Ceremonial law part is not the covenant. While the truths of the rituals with their ceremonial Sabbaths, and let me just stop and say this. 
The ceremonial Sabbaths outline the entire Jewish worship year. They, everything revolved around those Sabbaths. And they would change, as you know, they would change. Sometimes they'd fall on a Monday, a Tuesday, just depend on when the moons and so forth lined up in the right way. So they could change with the, the seasons as far as the day in which they felt. That was not true, of course, the Sabbath. Um, I lost my place here. While the truths of the rituals with their ceremonial Sabbaths would endure in the saving grace of Jesus, the practice of the rituals with their sacrifices and Sabbaths would obviously no longer be needed once they were fulfilled. The practice of the morals of the Ten Commandments is still needed today. Now, all you have to do is read the news to understand that. By its very nature, moral truth is eternal, not symbolic. It does not change. And the weekly Sabbath is included in moral truth. Ceremonial Sabbaths were part and parcel of the redemptive rituals given after sin. These Sabbaths, with their sacrifices, were given to bring sinners back to the moral law, which includes the Sabbath. In contrast, the weekly Sabbath was given to man before sin at creation. It was given to preserve unfallen man from sin, not to redeem him. Its sacred time was to encourage man's faith in his creator, the source of all morality. Before the, before the fall, the Sabbath was given to encourage them to keep the faith and their trust in God. Does that make sense? Because you had a special day every week and you worshiped God and you had a connection with Him that was given to keep them in harmony with the Creator. So it's moral. It's not redemptive. By the way, you're not saved by keeping the Sabbath. You're not saved by obeying the second commandment. Now, I know somebody's going to pull that out of context. Because the Ten Commandments have no redeeming power. Follow me? But we are saved by the blood of Christ and the living Christ who comes into my heart and when he does, he brings the Sabbath into my heart. He brings the second commandment into my heart. That's why this thing cannot, this law, this morality, this moral law cannot be established without faith in Christ who brings himself then into my heart. It's impossible to establish the moral law outside of a born-again Christian. Impossible. Let me keep parts of it and pieces of it because it's in their selfish best interest. But you can't be truly a moral person until the living Christ lives out his life in you. And you're surrendered to that living Christ. Still with me? Now, I know somebody's going to take this out of context. If I give up the Sabbath now, if I give up morality now of the Ten Commandments, and people say, well, he's going to be lost. 
That is only true because in order to give it up, I have to give up Christ. Don't lose that. You have no morality outside of the living Christ. If you give him up, you will give up morality. Now, you may not become some mass shooter somewhere, but you'll just live your life selfishly. You'll embrace what you want and think you're okay. You're not okay. We, we must understand as Seventh-day Adventists that what we offer to the world is not the Ten Commandments alone. We offer the world the living Christ who has fulfilled and carries out those Ten Commandments into the believer's life and heart. And you can never separate that from people. There may be people who've accepted the Sabbath, and I'm sure there are, but they don't have a living Christ in their heart. And they're not a moral person when looked in the mirror that God will put up in front of every one of us. The only way that I can be moral, and there's two parts to this, the only way I can be moral when God puts that mirror up in front of me is that first of all, hallelujah, my, my sins are cleansed by the ceremonial fulfillment of Christ. You with me? And then I have the living Christ living out his moral life in me. And when Christ's life is reflected in that mirror, it's going to be picture perfect. Now, you may say I'm flawed. I know you are because I am too. Christ knows that. But I don't get up in the morning and say, oh, hallelujah, I'm under grace today. It won't matter what I do today. Now, you use this word in some Adventist circles, and everybody gets nervous. It's called the word perfection. I knew it would get quiet real quick. You have your Bible. I'm going to read something to you. If you have it, leave your finger in Galatians, and we'll go to Colossians. That's another great book, by the way. I love Colossians. I wish I had time to get into Colossians chapter 2, but it, you'll understand Colossians chapter 2 if you understand this. Okay, where's Colossians at? Here we go, Colossians. All right. Just after he says in chapter 1, verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which goes right along with Galatians 2.20. Now listen to what he says. Him, people don't read this part. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man in Christ. Presenting perfect in Christ. Why do they warn you? What's the warning about? I'll tell you. The warning is don't give up Christ. Don't give up surrender to Christ. That's the warning. There's going to be temptations for everybody. Beckons us. Feels good. But if I have to go down that road, 
if it's if it's if God says don't go down that road, I've said no, and I go down that road of temptation. What am I doing to Jesus? This used Christ. The toughest parts in my life are when I want to do some things that Jesus doesn't want me to do. And you've all been there. You may be there this morning. I hope not. But listen to Jesus' definition of perfection. Because in our mind, and don't get me wrong, I've got Vicki over here. She'll keep me in the straight and narrow. <laughs> She's laughing. She knows I can get away with it. Um, thank God for our health message. So just let me underline that. We should, Jesus wants us to have a health message, doesn't he? He wants us to take good care of our bodies. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But you can't do it perfectly. So live in a fallen world. You apply the health print. I'm on, this is my little sidetrack here because so many, I have people come up to me just struggling as to whether they're accepted with God because they have done this, that, or the other. There's the health principle, the principles of healthful living. And you need to apply those with common sense in a fallen, broken world. And Vicki's agreeing with me. We've talked about this. You get fanaticism when people think somehow I can do this perfectly and my acceptance to God is based on how perfectly I do this. Now that is not an excuse to abandon the principle of healthful living. Two ditches. Still with me? Understand that? We don't want fanaticism by the grace of God. I got three minutes and I got off on this subject. I'm just using that as an illustration. You can do that with anything, uh, by the way. So uh, the moral principle is that I take care of my body. That's important. But you are only safe if your faith is in Christ and it's Christ that gives you that peace of mind and heart. Now, I want to get back to that word perfection because it's a big deal. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, I believe. Matthew chapter 5. I wish I had one of those photographic memories that you could just... I was talking to somebody on the way up here. This guy has a photographic memory. Everything he reads, it's locked in there forever. Okay. Um, yeah, chapter 5, and I want to look at verse um, 43. But you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love, love your enemy. That doesn't mean you affirm them. You don't affirm their immoral behavior. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's tough, but if we have the living Christ in us, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now listen, 
For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And I'm skipping now to verse 48. Therefore, you shall be, oh, there's the word. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What makes your Father in heaven perfect according to that context? Because he loves everybody and he makes the rain fall on the allies and the Nazis. He gives good gifts to everybody, not because he condones it, because there's a day of judgment coming. But out of the goodness of his heart, in order to try to win people, God gives his love. If you want to be, if you want to be perfect, you must love the way Jesus loves. That's not sentimentalism. That love is defined by the Ten Commandments. Follow me? And we spend, two, we, we want to be good. We want to reflect. I, being good is a good thing. You know, I've heard preachers get up and they do this law. And you don't need to, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not good. All, no, it does matter. If Jesus lives in your heart, you want to be good. And it's a good thing to want to be good. It's the right thing to want to be moral. But we cannot do it without the living Christ in our hearts and in our lives. We must note that if Jesus had not kept the Sabbath, he would have transgressed the moral law and would have been a blemished lamb. In glaring contrast to the Pharisaic man-made regulations, Jesus kept the Sabbath as the Ten Commandments required not as the Pharisees demanded. And when they complained, he declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ's perfect life, Christ's perfect life was perfect because he had perfect love. Does that make sense? Like his heavenly Father. Christ's perfect life reinforced not just the validity of his saving grace, but the validity of the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath. These facts make it impossible to escape the conclusion that if grace and forgiveness for breaking the moral law matters, then the Ten Commandments matter. And if the Ten Commandments matter, certainly the Seventh-day Sabbath matters. To try to separate the Sabbath from the Ten Commandments destroys its unity and its moral authority. By the way, I love, I love Galatians, and I love Romans, I love the Apostle Paul. And I want to say something, I hope you will not misunderstand me. You can know everything about the mark of the beast. You can know it well. You can know the prophecies well. Praise God for the prophecies. I love the prophecies. By the way, though, there is a moral purpose to prophecy. Prophecy isn't given just to satisfy your curiosity. 
And I don't have even time to get into that. It was given to convert you and to change your heart and your life. You can go all the prophecies very well, and when you're confronted with the mark of the beast, you'll give it up. I mean, you'll give up the Sabbath, you'll give up everything. Unless you have this living Christ in you. If you have the living Christ in you, you will stand up to all the forces of hell, of man, and you'll still love them. Look at the martyrs down through the dark age. Look what these people went through. How could they go through all of these things? Because they had the living Christ. Young women, mothers, would put on their best dress knowing that they were going to be drowned for their faith because they, they're going to meet the Lord. They had this living Christ. The reason the early church exploded it was because it had this living Christ. And the condemnation of our day and age is that we have a form of godliness without the power thereof. And the reason we don't have the power is because we don't have the living Christ. We have the form, but not the power. And the power isn't communicated to you by charismatic preachers, all due respect. I'm not against Audioverse. It's got lots of stuff in it. I'm not against some of these other websites that have all kinds of Adventist preaching. And some people go around just listening to one preacher after another. We need to know the Scripture for ourselves, and then we wouldn't be such babes when we run into opposition. We need to know the fundamentals of why we believe what we believe. It doesn't matter whether you have no education or hold lots of education. I love William Tyndall as he shook his finger at one of the religious leaders of his day and said, I'm going to translate the Scripture into English and I will make that plowboy know more about the Scripture than you do. You have all kinds of tools. You can get apps on your phone of concordances. You can get, you can compare Scripture to Scripture like you've never, and you can do it fast like you've never had before. There are powerful tools today that you can use and you should use. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to know this book and love this book. You know, one of my prayers is, Lord, help me to love what you love because there's much stuff in my old carnal nature, selfish nature, that loves other stuff. Help me to love what you love and to hate what you hate. And is to study this word that, and you don't study this just for theory, but this wonderful Savior, when he comes into our art, he brings the ceremonial law and he brings the moral law because in him it was fulfilled and never, ever done away with. It's bow our heads. Gracious Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for this marvelous Jesus. Thank you for the Bible. We want to be really your children. Help us to love what you love, to despise what you despise, and to be perfect like you in exhibiting love and care, even to those who hate us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. 
To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.